Good evening, everyone, and thanks for joining us tonight at the Square Ball Center. And the new people who are walking in now, I beg you to come down and fill the front row seats because we have some gaps. And it looks like a bad dental job. So um, if you could step forward, that would be terrific. Uh, my name is John Donvan. I'm the moderator of Intelligence Squared, and uh, we are delighted tonight to be inaugurating our fifth season. This is our 40th debate uh, and our second season in the Skirball Center. And I just wanted to take a few minutes to talk with you as members of the audience, particularly if you are not regular subscribers and are here for the first time, to talk about the role of the audience in our debate, which is uh, distinct and unique. Um, number one, you are the judges in this debate. We actually come out with the result, which team won. And the way that we reach that result is by determining which side has changed the most minds. And we measure that by asking you in the audience to vote twice on the motion, once before the debate and once again after the debate, and the team that has changed the most minds in percentage terms has declared our winner. The way we ask you to vote, if you look at your seats, all of you have a keypad on the left-hand side, and that is the device by which you register your vote. And so when I come to this portion of the program, which will be early, and I restate our motion, which is treat terrorists as enemy combatants, not criminals, if you agree with the motion, press number one, and if you disagree, you'll press number two, and if you're undecided, you'll press number three. The other numbers are irrelevant, and also if you push the wrong number, just correct your mistake, and the system will lock in the last of the, uh, of the uh, votes. A few other things. Um, we come to you for questions in the middle of the debate. The lights will come up. Raise your hand. I'll find you. A microphone will be brought to you. We'll ask you to stand up. If you're a member of the news media, we ask you to identify yourself as such. And um, when you get the microphone, hold about two fists length a distance from your mouth so that we can record you. And the reason for that is that this entire debate is being recorded for Bloomberg Television NPR stations, and we're now very popular with NPR stations. This debate is now heard by millions of people, um, thanks to the NPR broadcast. But to that end, we need the sound to be good. And to that end, I want to ask everybody right now to turn off your cell phones and beepers really to zero power, because even uh, an idle phone will um, wreak havoc with our microphones. And incidentally, I'll just point out, if we're this far below street level, leaving it on is going to run down your battery very fast anyway. The last thing is when I ask you to ask questions, um, I'm fairly tough about what I'll take as a question. I really don't want to ask for two part, take a two-part question. Please pick your part and go with it. Please, please try to be very brief, as terse as possible. Um, you know, something that takes about 30 seconds or so. And something that really is a question. There's that there, a question mark fits at the end of, of the sentence. And that, and that is in, on our topic. And when I say it's on our topic, Yes, I acknowledge that we can have a little bit of leeway with this topic, but we really want to relate it to the issue that you will be voting on later in the, de later in the evening. Um, we would discourage questions that really take us on diversions or very, very deeply into the weeds on a specific case, unless you have a really, really good reason for, for doing so. Um, and uh, so we, encourage, we really encourage you, and it becomes a big, big part of the broadcast, to hear your involvement in this, and it really helps to move the debate along. But that's the point. Try to come up with a question that really will move the debate along. So that's it. We're going to bring the debaters on in about a minute. In fact, right now, I just want to welcome them all to the stage.
And throughout the evening, because of the needs of the radio broadcast, I'll be repeating a lot of things to the point of what will seem tedium, um, mentioning the, the, the topic of the debate over and over and describing where we are over and over again. And just so you understand, that's for the purpose of the radio broadcast. And now I would like to introduce the gentleman who is responsible for the Intelligent Squared U.S. series, now starting its fifth season, its 40th debate, Mr. Robert Rosencrantz. Uh, good evening, and thank you for being here. You know, as we assemble uh, tonight, a few days after the anniversary of 9-11, uh, it should be obvious that there are distinctions between terrorists and criminals, and as well as between terrorists and soldiers, uh, just as there are distinctions between counterterrorism and the criminal justice system and the laws of war. Deterring crime is a major function of criminal law. But suicide bombers cannot be deterred. Criminal interrogations are conducted after crimes are committed so we can punish the guilty. In contrast, the interrogation of suspected terrorists has a different goal. It's to prevent attacks before they occur. In criminal proceedings, we would prefer to see a guilty man go free than to compromise our own sense of fairness. That's why, for example, the most damning evidence of guilt cannot be used if it's obtained illegally. Turning to the laws of war, the Geneva Convention is in part a Bill of Rights for soldiers in uniform, but the requirement for uniforms equally protects civilians by making them readily distinguishable from soldiers. Well, tonight's resolution is about whether these distinctions should or should not make a difference. Are the substance and procedures of criminal law consistent with our societal needs for intelligence and security? Do the Geneva Convention protections for soldiers in uniform apply to Al-Qaeda, which is not a party to the convention and which blends with and deliberately targets civilian populations? Finally, if we don't treat terrorists like criminals and we don't treat them like soldiers, how do we constrain our military, our intelligence officers, and interrogators so that their actions are consistent with our own societal values? Well, these are vexing issues, but we have an outstanding panel with us this evening to discuss them. And now I'd like to turn the proceedings over to our host and moderator, John Donvan. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'd like to... Uh I just would like to invite one more round of applause for Robert Rosencrantz for making this all possible. Well, welcome, everyone, to another debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News, and again, it is my honor to be serving as moderator as the four debaters you see sharing the stage with me here at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. Four debaters, two against two, will be debating this motion, Treat Terrorists Like Enemy Combatants, Not criminals. Now, this is a debate. There will be a winner and a loser, and you, our audience, will be serving as the judges. By the time the debate has ended, we will have asked you to vote twice, once both before the debate and once again after you have heard the arguments. And the team that has changed the most minds, once we see where you stand on the motion, that team will be declared our winner. And as this is a debate, uh, everything is fair and robust. We just ask these debaters to bring intelligence and wit and humor and charm. I think you have that going for you as well. 
but mostly intelligence. We want this to be a high-level, smart debate, and that's why we have all of you here as well when you participate in the middle section. So on to the voting to establish where you in the audience stand before the debate begins. You have at your seats a keypad that will help you register your position on this motion. Treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. If you agree with this motion, push number one. If you disagree, push number two. And if you are undecided, push number three. We will register this vote, and at the end of the debate, the team that has changed the most minds when you vote again will be declared our winner, with the motion being, treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. So on to the debate, round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. They will speak for seven minutes each, uninterrupted. Our motion is, treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. And I would like to introduce our first debater arguing for this motion, Mark Thiessen, who is a columnist for the Washington Post. He's also a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a former speechwriter for President George Bush. He came out with a book this year that was a stiff defense of the interrogation methods used by the CIA throughout the war on terror. And it sold really, really well, actually, Mark. Congratulations to you. So a lot of people liked it. Your critics don't like it. They, they uh, I think Jane Mayer of the Washington Post calls it the, the Bible for the torture apologist. Is, is that fair? No, not at all. <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I'm surprised you said that. Mark Thiessen. Thank you, John. I want to thank Mr. Rosencrantz for inviting Mike Hayden and I to the only debate we could possibly win in Greenwich Village. Um, we just marked, as Mr. Rosencrantz said, the anniversary of September 11, 2001. So I'd like to start by asking members of the audience a question. Uh, with a show of hands, how many of you remember exactly where you were when the attacks of September 11 happened? Good. Let the record show it's everybody. Okay. I want you to think back to that time. I want you to think back to the scenes of burning rubble. I want you to think back to the shock that you felt at the ability of the terrorists to penetrate our defenses and launch such an attack like that in our midst. And the questions we were all asking. Who had attacked us? What do they want? Were there more attacks coming? Um, if I had told you back then that we would go almost a decade without another terrorist attack, who would have believed me? Very few, I think, a few. Um, most of us thought it was going to be the first of many attacks. I was in the Pentagon on September 11, 2001. I was blessed not to be at the point of impact, but I was a few corridors down. And I remember feeling the the building shutter. I remember the smell of the smoke in the hallways. And the one thing I remember very distinctly is that the alarms never went off, the evacuation alarms. We all just sort of filed out of the building and went uh, on out to, the, out to the lawn and looked back at the broken and burning Pentagon. But in the months that followed, the alarms went off a bunch of times as false reports of impending attacks, planes that were headed our way, kept coming in. And every time, the whole building, we would all evacuate and go out on the, on the uh, lawn and look back, look up at the sky, waiting for the attack that never came. Why did that attack never come? I would submit to you there are only two possibilities. Either the terrorists lost interest in attacking us again, or we found out what their plans were and stopped them from carrying them out. Mike Hayden and I will argue tonight that the latter is the case. Uh, we will argue that the reason that attack did not happen is because we abandoned the law enforcement approach to, to, to terrorism that failed to stop the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, that failed to stop the attack on the uh, embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, that failed to stop 
the attack on the USS Cole that failed to stop the, the attacks of 9-11, that we abandoned that approach and began to treat terrorists as enemy combatants and not criminals. On, in those early days after 9-11, we knew almost nothing about the enemy who had attacked us. We did not know that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the mastermind of 9-11. He wasn't even on our org charts. And we didn't know who his accomplices were. And unbeknownst to us, there were two terrorist networks out there at large planning new attacks. The KSM network that had planned and carried out 9-11 and the Hambali network, which was a cell of Southeast Asian terrorists that KSM had organized because he knew we'd be on the lookout for Arab men. And those terror networks were in the advanced stages of planning a series of attacks, including a plot to blow up high-rise apartment buildings in the United States using natural gas, a plot to repeat 9-11 in Europe uh, by flying airplanes into Heathrow Airport in downtown London, a plot to blow up the U.S. consulate in Karachi and Western residences in Karachi, a al-Qaeda cell that was developing anthrax for attacks inside the United States, and a cell, the, the, the Garaba cell, the Southeast Asians, who KSM had tasked to fly an airplane into the tallest building in the West Coast, the Library Tower in Los Angeles. We did not know any of it. Not a word. We didn't know who those people were, what they had planned. And then we started capturing terrorists. Abu Zubaydah, Ramzi bin al-Shib, KSM. And they provided us information that allowed us to round up and dismantle both of those terror networks. When KSM was captured and brought into custody, he was asked about upcoming attacks. And you know what he said? I'll tell you everything when I get to New York and see my lawyer. Ladies and gentlemen, our opponents tonight would have granted that request. And if we had listened to their advice, if we had told KSM, you have the right to remain silent, there would be craters in the ground in Los Angeles and Karachi and London and other cities in this country because of the attacks that we did not stop. Um, this debate is about more than Miranda rights. Uh, the, uh, the Obama administration has eliminated the CIA program but at least they're killing terrorists using predator drones, right? No, 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 so our opponents, that's illegal too. The ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Rights filed a lawsuit a couple of weeks ago saying that because terrorists outside of Iraq and Afghanistan are criminals and not enemy combatants, we cannot kill terrorists in those areas using predator drones. So if you believe that we should not kill terrorists using predator drones, then vote for them. But that program has killed half of the al-Qaeda leadership, and it is probably the only thing standing between us and another 9-11. One final point. Our opponents are going to try and turn this into a debate on waterboarding. I'm happy to have that debate. As John pointed out, I wrote a book defending the practice. But if they're arguing about waterboarding, they're losing, and I'll tell you why. The, it is a little-known fact. How many people think Barack Obama ended waterboarding? He didn't. My debate partner, Mike Hayden, ended waterboarding. When Mike Hayden handed over the CIA program to Barack Obama, the techniques involved were the tummy slap, the facial hold, mild sleep deprivation, and a diet of liquid insure. I'm sure the makers of liquid insure will be thrilled to know that their product is torture. <laughs> the bottom line is there is a wide area between waterboarding on one hand and telling KSM and other terrorists you have the right to remain silent. So you can be against waterboarding and for the proposition that we should treat terrorists as criminals, as, as not, and before the proposition we should treat terrorists as enemy combatants and not criminals. So finally, I'd just like to ask you, keep in mind, 
if you would like to keep killing terrorists with predator drones. If you, would like, if you think that our first priority in the war on terror, when we capture a terrorist, should be interrogating them for intelligence, not obtaining uh, evidence for prosecution. If you want to continue the approach to counterterrorism that has prevented us from being struck again as we were on 9-11, then I ask you to vote for our position. Uh, if you would like to eliminate all those tools, I suggest you vote for the other side and find a safe place to hide. Thank you. Thank you, Mark Thiessen. The motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. We have heard the opening statement by the side for the motion, and now to speak first against the motion, I'd like to introduce David Fracht, who is a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force Reserve JAG Corps. That means he's a lawyer in the military. He served as lead defense counsel with the Office of Military Commissions. He represented detainees at Guantanamo. His most famous case is that of the teenager who was released finally after you made the case that his interrogation had been conducted improperly. He went home. David, I know you did him. It worked out well for him. Is it your view that that works out well for the United States? Absolutely. Uh, anytime an innocent man is, is, is released, uh, that's a very positive thing. And I, It wasn't my advocacy that got him out. Uh, actually, the Department of Justice after seven years, uh, acknowledged that actually he was not an enemy combatant, uh, and, and so he was sent home, and um, it was a great day for America. Ladies and gentlemen, David Fracht. Thank you. It, it's, a, it's a privilege to be here and against uh, such august uh, opposition. Uh, I'm going to start by, by disagreeing, and it's probably not a good idea to uh, disagree with your host, uh, but... Uh, Mr. Rosencrantz made a comment in his opening remarks that the criminal justice system is about punishing criminals after the fact. And that's a, a notion I would like to disabuse uh, our audience of um, because the criminal justice system is much more robust than that. Uh, it's there, our law enforcement, and working hand-in-hand -hand with intelligence, is there to uh, detect crime before it happens, to infiltrate terrorist networks, to, um, to deter attacks. And we, we don't have to wait for a crime to be completed before stepping in. We've seen it over and over again where uh, the uh, police or the FBI uh, or the New York NYPD uh, breaks up a, a terrorist cell or dis discovers a plot in progress or a conspiracy. And those people can be arrested. They can be interrogated uh, by law enforcement. And, we yield, and those interrogations yield a lot of information. There's this perception somehow that, that reading people Miranda rights automatically means that they're never going to talk again. And, so, and it's true that sometimes when advised with the right to an attorney and the right to remain silent, that people clam up, but not always. In fact, quite often uh, they, they divulge uh, a lot of information. Um, and, and so we're able to, to charge people with attempting crimes, with conspiracies to commit crimes, and uh, put a lot of terrorists away. In fact, uh, since 9-11, we, uh, the, the federal, and talking only about federal uh, prosecutions, over 400 terrorists have been locked up for an average of 20 years apiece. Now, contrast that with Guantanamo, which started with, uh, or at its peak, had 787 uh, detainees. Um, of course, 
and all of whom were at one time accused of being enemy combatants. The Bush administration ended up releasing over two-thirds of those when they realized they had no evidence against the vast majority of them. Another hundred were cleared for release before President Obama take, took over. Another hundred have been cleared for release now. So what's the scorecard now? We have uh, four detainees who have been prosecuted uh, successfully in military commissions, four convictions versus 400. Uh, the Obama administration, after a year-long review, determined that there were 35 detainees that, that should be tried in some criminal forum, and there's another 48 that they say are too dangerous. Uh, so we're talking about 83 people after, after seven or eight years that they've decided are really the bad guys. And this is the danger of simply labeling people with it as enemy combatants. And you have to think about the implications of what is being proposed here, because it's a whole... Uh, and, and Mr. Thiessen acknowledged it. Uh, they want to go back to the program of the prior administration. And what did that entail? It entailed locking people up indefinitely, without charge, without access to courts, without access to counsel, subjecting them to a full range of interrogation techniques, uh, many of which are ab abhorrent to American values. And, uh, and they were not given the opportunity to... Uh, defend themselves, to even find out what the basis for their detention was. And that's the system that, that uh, Mr. Thiessen would like to return to. Uh, and I, I think it's a fundamentally un-American system. Terrorists are criminals, nothing more. It may be that they have particularly grandiose criminal plans. But by labeling them as combatants, we actually legitimize them. We elevate their status to a warrior status, which is what they seek. Uh, and we engage in a war on their terms. Um, and, and I don't think that's a good idea. Um, let me pose a question. Mr. Thiessen posed a question to you. Um, and he talked about the fact that there hasn't been any attacks uh, as if this is proof that the, those uh, methods, uh, the illegal interrogation methods and, and treating people as enemy combatants, worked, and that's the reason we didn't have any attacks. Well, let me tell you why we didn't have any attacks. Uh, and, of course, there were a number of attempted attacks, um, but the reason is because we entered into, by treating terrorism primarily as a military problem, as a war, we started two voluntary, unnecessary wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we presented the terrorists with, with hundreds of thousands of targets, American soldiers, and as bad as 9-11 was, and 3,000 people died on that day, but we have lost 5,700 American service members dead. Another 1,100 coalition members dead in Iraq and Afghanistan. And 39,000 American service members injured. Um, you know, it's, it's basically revived the Veterans Administration uh, hospitals because we have a whole generation of wounded uh, warriors out there who have been uh, you know, fighting wars that really aren't necessary. And are we safer? That's the question you really have to ask. Did you, are we, were we safer after eight years of this approach? Ask yourself this question. Are there more people in the world? According to Mr. Thiessen, there were two little terrorist cells of Al-Qaeda after 9-11. How many terrorists are there right now in, this, in the world or violent jihadists who are willing to strap a bomb to their bodies and kill Americans? 
or plant roadside bombs. We have essentially launched a global war, and that's what we called it, the global war on terror. But the Islamic world in interpreted it as a war on them, and we have alienated tens and hundreds of millions of people unnecessarily, and we are not safer. Um, we are not safer when we abandon our core values. Um, and that's essentially, they, they use coded language, but that's what they're talking about, because they're talking about not using law enforcement methods, not using traditional tools. And they want a world of perfect security where no crimes are ever committed, where no terrorist attacks. That's never going to happen. Um, and when we seek, strive for that, we end up with a police state. The safest country in the world is North Korea, but we don't want to live in North Korea. Thank David you. Frack, thank you very much. At this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, our motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. We have heard from the first two debaters arguing for and against this motion. Now, our third debater to argue for the motion, I'd like to introduce Michael Hayden. He is a retired four-star Air Force general and former director of the CIA. And, Michael, when you took over, the, the interrogation program of the CIA that had been in place had just about been called to a halt under political pressure and other complaints. You t decided to take a look at it again, commissioned your own review, which you undertook personally, and you concluded what? I spent the whole summer of 2006 getting what I would call a graduate degree on the CIA interrogation and detention program. I was a blank sheet. I had no vested interest in what had gone on before. I could have chosen any course of action. At the end of the summer, I went to President Bush and said I wanted to make some modifications to the program, as Marcus suggested, but that I could not in conscience given my responsibility as director of CIA to defend the republic, take this program off the table for him or for any future president. He needed this. In conscience, I could not just say, make it go away. It would have been a comfortable decision, John. It probably would have gotten credit in some circles, but it would have been immoral. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Hayden. Well, I, th I think Mark and David have kind of teed up the question pretty nicely for us here. <laughs> are we a nation at war or are we not? Should we perceive ourselves to be at war or should we not? Uh, David said that our adversary in this thing out there, war or not, are criminals and nothing more. But if that's the case, let me take you back almost a year to today to the Horn of Africa, to Somalia, to American Navy SEALs in a helicopter, a Seahawk coming off a, a Navy carrier in the Indian Ocean, going after an individual named Salah Nabhan. Salah Nabhan at the time was the leader of Al-Qaeda in Somalia, Al-Qaeda in the Horn of Africa. We killed him. We landed long enough to swab up portions of his remain to get DNA evidence that we had killed him. I wasn't in the mission. I was out of government by this time. I wasn't privy to the pre-brief. But I know what was asked by the SEAL commander before he got on the helicopter. Sir, is this a kill or a capture? And it's very clear from what happened. He was told, this is a kill. No probable cause, no warrant, no court. Because we are a nation at war, and Salah Nabhan was part of an opposing armed enemy force. 
I became an advocate. My epiphany that we are a nation at war took place about 10 minutes after 10, September 11, 2001. It became clear to me at that point, and I believe in few things more firmly than I believe in the fact that we are a nation at war. President Obama has said we are a nation at war. President Bush has said we are a nation at war. In March of 2007, I went to the German residence to give a talk to all the ambassadors to the United States from the nations of the European Union. And Germany was in the chair of the EU. They were inviting these ambassadors in. They invited an American to come to kind of be the lunchtime entertainment. Bob Gates was there at one point. Condi Rice at another. This was my turn. I decided to say something interesting. I decided to talk to our European friends about renditions, detentions, and interrogations. I had a wonderful speechwriting staff at CIA. But this is a speech that I took a personal hand in. On page two of that speech, I simply said to our European friends, let me tell you what, what I believe, what my agency believes, and what I believe my country believes. We are a nation at war. We are at war with al-Qaeda and its affiliates. This war is global in scope. And I can only fulfill my legal and moral responsibilities to the citizens of my republic by taking this fight to this enemy wherever he may be. A year ago, last August, August of 2009, I was in Phoenix. President Obama was addressing the VFW. He said quite clearly, we are at war. We are at war with al-Qaeda and its affiliates. Now, I know most of the American population doesn't sense that they are at war. I know that. The American Armed Forces know that we are. The American security establishment knows that we are. The American intelligence community knows that we are. You, your political processes, have sent me, a career military officer, the director of the CIA, to war. You have told me to defend you. Do not take away from me the tools that I need to perform the service you demand. At some point in our conversation tonight, there will be a discussion here about we need to uphold the rule of law. I could not agree more. It just matters what model of law we are committed to upholding. Is this an issue best addressed through American criminal law, or is this an issue best addressed through the laws of armed conflict? I submit to you that it's only the laws of armed conflict that will keep you safe. This isn't theoretical for me. This was real. I had a meeting with my general counsel and his team at CIA about two years ago. I said to the team, our enemy is opening a new front. They are beginning to attack us, with attack in quotes, it's a bit metaphorical. They are beginning to attack us in the American legal system. We have to best them in the legal system the way we are defeating them in the tribal region of Pakistan. And I told my lawyers, I want you to lean as far forward in the harness as you possibly can in terms of giving information to our court system. I want blood on the harness. You are leaning so far forward. We worked our tails off in those judicial processes, specifically the habeas corpus. And we got to a point where we could go no farther. One of the judges demanded that we provide, not him, but the defendant, the name and the identity of the intelligence source we had used in order to determine that he was a member of al-Qaeda. I know you don't live in the world I used to live in, 
but there is nothing that a director of CIA could do in those circumstances. You cannot let the world know that sources who risk everything, who risk all to work for you, will have their names revealed in the American judicial process to the individual that they have identified as al-Qaeda. The Christmas attack is another little morality play that really demonstrates the fallacy of treating this as a law enforcement matter. Umar Farouk Abdul-Muttalib attempted to down an American aircraft. He was a member of al-Qaeda. He was an enemy combatant. It was an attack mounted from outside the United States towards and in the United States. And because of a law enforcement mentality, we sent a clean team in there, a clean team. That is somebody in the FBI who knew nothing of what Abdul Muttalib had told us after only 50 minutes of interrogation. Every known al-Qaeda aircraft attack against this country has involved multiple threads of attack. 9-11, 2006 from London, the Bojinka plot over the Pacific. And yet after 50 minutes, our instincts were so strong for law enforcement that we allowed him to lawyer up. That's unconscionable. That's a terrible decision. And it's based upon a model that, you know, he's just a criminal, and we just need to make sure we get him in jail. That's not the objective here. The objective is to keep you safe. Thank you very much. Our motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. And finally, to speak against the motion, I'd like to introduce Stephen Jones, who is uh, an attorney from uh, the Midwest, from Oklahoma, I believe, uh, managing partner of the law firm Jones, Ochian, and Davis. He has also defended a well-known terrorist, but not from the Middle East. He defended Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. And uh, you were a public defender in that role, so you were assigned to him and he to you. I'm curious, did, did you want that case when it came well, to you? Well, I wasn't a public defender. I wasn't even on the panel. I was appointed as a lawyer by the judges in the federal courts in Oklahoma City. And did you want the case? Well, when a judge or judges ask you to take a case, what you want or don't want is not relevant. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Jones. First of all, let me tell you that uh, I am a Republican, and I voted for George Bush both times, and I voted for John McCain, and yes, Sarah Palin, and I don't apologize for that. <laughs> I don't think the argument here is political. I think the argument is constitutional, and it basically boils down to how far we are willing to sacrifice our ideals, our history, our beliefs as a nation for security. And is that security real or temporary? Has the target of our adversaries simply moved offshore, much like banking and investments? Or is the target here? For those law enforcement agencies and members of the National Intelligence Establishment who have protected us and worked long and devoted hours, there can be no criticism. But that's hardly the issue, nor, frankly, is the ACLU the issue. The issue, quite simply, is whether we are a nation of laws, and there are three reasons, compelling reasons, why you should vote against this resolution and vote no. The first is that the United States of America 
did not happen accidentally. There was a political deal, a bargain. The bargain was this, that the 12 states that participated in the Philadelphia Convention would surrender some of their rights, which they held very importantly, to a central government that they had no experience with. And in return for that surrender of their rights to that central government, that government would, as its first order of business, pass a series of amendments to the Constitution to restrict the power of that government which they had agreed to join. So the rights of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, the right to petition redress of grievances, the right to a fair trial, to due process, to protection against self-incrimination, to the assistance of counsel, to be safe and secure unless a warrant is issued by the law enforcement to search it, the right to a public trial, the right to a speedy trial, all of those are in those first ten amendments. And the bargain was redeemed. And a hundred years later, or almost a hundred years later, that bargain was purchased and redeemed by the blood of more Americans who died in the Civil War than all the other wars. By the Civil War, President Lincoln's address at Gettysburg and the passage of the 14th Amendment, we as a nation reaffirm the ideal which is due process of law, equal protection of all people under the Constitution, not something that we always follow, and there have been black holes in our history, but that is our ideal. That is the American experience, a written Constitution that limits the powers of government. Secondly, the United States is for millions, hundreds of millions of people in the world, their ideal. One of our presidents once referred to a letter by one of the early English governors that the United States is a city upon a hill. Well, it is a city upon a hill. And what makes us special is that we try every day and in every way, most of us, to uphold those ideals. And if we were to surrender even temporarily those ideals, if we were willing to say to these individuals who are charged, charged, not convicted, charged with terrorist offenses, that we will be like Great Britain in Northern Ireland in the early 70s, and we will suspend these basic rights, these things that our national experience have taught us, we would lose many of the allies, supporters, and people who in their hearts look at the United States. And finally, having represented a terrorist, and before 9-11, the Oklahoma City bombing was the greatest act of domestic terrorism in this country. 168 people dead, 19 of them children under the age of six, eight federal law enforcement agents, over a billion dollars of uninsured damages, 500 people seriously injured, and 30,000 who sought and received mental or emotional intervention because of their disturbances. But Tim McVeigh was tried and convicted before a jury in a federal court. He had lawyers. He got a change of venue. 
He got a severance. He got the money through the federal system to pay his lawyers to investigate the case and bring witnesses to Denver, Colorado. Even though in the last days of that trial, the G7 summit was meeting in Denver. But in our country, our security forces, our law enforcement was able to provide both a fair trial for Tim McVeigh and protect the world's leaders meeting five miles away. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the courts are a sanctuary in the jungle. That's what they are. They are to determine justice is blind. We don't have a special court for people we call terrorists. We don't have a special criminal court for drug dealers. We don't have a special criminal court for murderers or people that commit other crimes, whether serious or small. We have a federal judicial system and a state judicial system, and then for the armed forces, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, because 200 years national experience has taught us that our safety comes just as much from adherence to the rule of law as it does to the talents of our intelligence agencies and our law enforcement agencies. The history of our country is on the side that Dave and I represent, and I urge you to vote no and to affirm the rule of law regardless of how despicable persons may be, for in the final analysis, the justice of a society is measured by how it treats its worst, not its best. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. I'm host and moderator for this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. We are at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts in New York City at NYU. We're on a stage uh, surrounded by several hundred of you in the audience, and on our stage, four debaters, two against two, debating this motion, treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. The team arguing for the motion include a former CIA director and a speechwriter for the Bush administration, now an author. They are arguing that we are in a war and that in war for the sake of security and survival, uh, we may need, we have to at times undertake unpleasant actions. It may even be the moral thing to do. Their opponents include two attorneys, one who works for the military and one who defended Tim McVeigh, and they argue that terrorists are nothing more than criminals and to treat them as more than criminals, actually does them a favor. We are now into round two, and I want to, at this point, invite you into the debate. In a few minutes, I'll come to you for questions, but in this part of the debate, the debaters can address one another directly and also will take questions from me. And my first question is actually to the side arguing against the motion. Your opponents include a former director of the CIA, a speechwriter for the Bush administration who wrote his, the president's speech in which he discussed these issues and he was briefed, as he tells it extensively, on how the system actually works and what it actually produced. And they are painting a very dire picture. And my question to you, their opponents, is whether they may just know more than you do. <laughs> David Fracht. Well, um, I would hate to concede that. Um, <laughs> and I, I would note that I, I do have a top-secret SEI clearance, but I did not uh, get the opportunity to see much of the intelligence uh, that would have come across the desk of, of General Hayden. I would hope that that intelligence did not come across the desk of Mark Thiessen. But, um, <laughs> uh, but some of it somehow seems to have gotten its way into his book. 
Um, so maybe we ought to be investigating that. But um, um, the, the, uh, the person you'd be investigating is Barack Obama, who released it. <laughs> Back to David Frecht. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, one of the things that uh, I want to... Well, no, I, I, I'm, I'm asking the question in a serious way that... that, that you, you, to, to hear this director of the CIA say, this was on me. This was my responsibility. I don't, not that I love doing these things, or any of us love doing it, but I, I, saw, I saw the impact, and that's why I came to that decision. I don't dispute that there is a possibility that some of the methods uh, endorsed by the Bush administration may have worked at times. Uh, what, but what that boils down to is an ends justify the means argument, and that's the argument that, that we reject. Because there is, you cannot achieve perfect safety. Um, might we have found that information without using enhanced interrogation methods? Might we have used it if we uh, had prioritized uh, our intelligence gathering, our law enforcement in other ways? They talk about plots that were foiled. They don't talk about all the blind alleys that, went, that they went down. Uh, they don't talk about um, all the lives that were ruined through false confessions uh, that were... Uh, wrung out of people in, in coercive interrogations. They don't talk about the people that were falsely accused uh, and only years later were released with no apology, no compensation. Uh, so it, it's, it's not entirely one-sided. Yes, sometimes the methods may work, but if they're un-American, uh, then may, we should not be doing it. Michael Hayden. I mean, if, if we want to have a debate about what constitutes appropriate interrogation methods, invite me back. I'd be happy to come. But that's not what this is about. This is, are these are these not enemy combatants? And if they are enemy combatants, do I have the right to hold them consistent with the laws of armed conflict because they are a danger to you? The Geneva Convention doesn't require me to prove that they're a criminal. I simply have to have reasonable belief that they're enemy combatants. But generally, the implications of, the implications of this, that decision actually in practice have to do with the, the, the most important and critical information, the, the rationale for even hewing to your position is to be able to interrogate them no, using certain no. methods. No, the rationale, the, the primary purpose is to take the enemy combatant off the battlefield. And if you overcomplicate my taking them off the battlefield by capturing him, you will leave me with only one other choice to take him off the battlefield, and that's to kill him. Now, do you, want to, do you want to create that box? If the American political process wants to create that box, the people I left behind in the intelligence service will work in that box. But that is a far less noble box than continuing the war as we have traditionally fought wars. I, I, I was stunned. Could I, could I respond that, to that, General? Well, I just, I just want one comment. Okay, one comment and then David. I was stunned that... Stephen made the comment to follow American history. When in American history have we had habeas hearings for enemy combatants? David? I think we need to be very clear about who we're talking about and, and, and define who we're referring to when we're talking about terrorists because from our perspective, uh, we are not talking about people who are actually captured on a battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan. There is no doubt that there is, in fact, an armed conflict going on in those places. And as a military uh, attorney, as a judge advocate, certainly I acknowledge that under the laws of war, 
we do have the power to detain and remove from the battlefield people who are engaged in active conflict. The problem is that the war has been defined in such amorphous terms that there's a claim of a global battlefield, including the United States, and that anyone who essentially is against America, and mostly we're talking about uh, the, their focus is on Islamic terrorists, um, are enemy combatants. Uh, so uh, Major uh, Hassan is a terrorist, and, but really he's a criminal. Uh, people, if, if you're in the United States and you attempt to commit a crime, the United States really is not a battlefield. We, I reject that. And even if it, uh, you, you think it is, the Constitution does apply here. Um, so there is a limited group of people uh, and that, yes, if it's in an act of war, in a theater of war, that they can be captured and removed from the battlefield. Um, but the solution, I mean, we have captured a lot of people. We did not screen them well. We sent people uh, who were brought in for ransom uh, without, you know, any back-checking, fact-checking, and, and packed them off to Guantanamo. Uh, and that's something okay. that's unprecedented. Let me, let me bring history. Mark Tutson into it. I'd like to – I'm not a lawyer. Uh, you have an advantage over us. But I'd like to enter some documents into evidence tonight. Uh, the inaugural address of Barack Obama. Objective. Our nation is at war. Here say. <laughs> Our nation is. That is a true statement. <laughs> the inaugural address of Barack Obama. Our nation is at war against a far-reaching network of violence and hatred. Please pass that to the other side. <laughs> Con congressional authorization of use of military force passed by the, by the House of Representatives 420 to 1, Senate 98 to nothing. We are at war. Supreme Court of the United States in the Hamdi decision. We are at war. We can hold to you people captured in the war as enemy combatants. And my, final piece, of my final piece corpus. of evidence, my final piece of evidence, bin Osama bin Laden's fatwa, which is entitled Declaration of War Against the Americans. What part of the war do you not understand? We are at war. The President, the Congress, the, the, the uh, Supreme Court, and the enemy all think we're at war, and you do not. Stephen Jones. Well, I suppose the problem that I have, Mark, is that I'm old enough to remember when Lyndon Johnson said we were at war with Vietnam and the legacy and the things that were done in the name of the declaration of war, which was non-existent. I regret to say that I'm old enough to remember what one of the presidents of my own party did in the name of national security in Watergate and when he tried to use the CIA and the FBI in the name of national security. I remember what happened in Iran-Contra, and I remember the efforts made uh, to assassinate Patrice Lumumba and uh, Premier Castro, Dr. Castro, and how that backlashed in this country. And I'm sorry, the powers of the federal government in the last 50 years destroyed any credibility when we are asked to believe people in power because frequently they know no more than what we can read in The Economist or The New York Times. Now, that information may be subject to different interpretation, but General Hayden talked about when in history have we had habeas for enemy combatants. General, your argument is not with me, it's with the Supreme Court, a majority of whom my presidents appointed. And they brought the argument three times that these people are entitled to habeas review. And if we look at our history, those things that we thought were good in a time of war because the national interest compelled it were wrong. And there is no greater example of that than the internment of 200,000 Japanese on the West Coast in World War II because we thought our national security 
required that we round them up, take them out of their homes, and put them in detention camps because they had attacked Pearl Harbor, at least their imperial Navy. All, all of which I want to say to the other side, all of which go to the issue of violation of core U.S. values that we say define us. Your opponents are saying essentially – and I think they've used the word un-American, that your position is so uh, at odds with what, with what we value so dearly, including equal protection under the law, that, that what you're doing is un-American. Can you respond to that? Well, I will tell you something about America. Stephen Mark uh, mentioned uh, American history. And you no, no, have, I want, I want no, no, the answer I to this question. No, I'm answering the question. Uh, since the Revolutionary War, the United States has held over 5 million enemy combatants. Until the War on Terror, not one of them was given habeas corpus rights to petition their uh, their uh, their uh, their, their uh, detention. Um, the uh, Geneva Convention, which by con uh, which uh, regulates the conduct of war, nowhere in there does it say that you have a right to contest uh, your detention in a, in a war. My mother is here, um, and uh, my mother was a prisoner of war. She fought in the Warsaw Uprising in Poland against the Nazis. Uh, she threw Molotov cocktails at German soldiers. And she was taken into a prisoner of war camp in Germany that would make Guantanamo look like the Four Seasons. Um, and she was not given a right to petition. And you would be uh, referring to the Geneva Conventions that the Bush administration said did not apply. Me. Now, hold on. Yes. The Geneva – well, this is the point. You want to give Geneva Convention rights to terrorists. Well, you don't even want to give them Geneva Convention rights because you don't accept it's a war. But to take the ar argu to argument, my mother followed the laws of war. She was in an army that carried its weapons openly, that did not target civilians, that, uh, that, uh, that war uniforms are distinctive insignia. The terrorists do none of those things. They violate all of those rules of war. And so you want to give more rights. Let me understand if I understand your position. You want to give more rights to the people who violate the laws of war than ri rights that the people who, who, like my mother, who follow the laws of war, never had. It's not that, that, is, that is throwing – that is It's not that we don't <laughs> trust you, but I want to check all this with your mother. <laughs> is she here? Can you stand up for just a moment? Is it, all, is it all true? Is it all true, everything he said? Are you proud of Mark? <laughs> all right. I want to get back yeah, to the... Well, we're hurrying. I mean, uh, <laughs> David Fracht. It, it's it's ironic that I'm, I'm being accused of not understanding war. I, I uh, have been awarded Global War of Terrorism uh, Expeditionary Service Medal, uh, two National Defense Service Medals. Uh, I understand that we are at war. Um, my objection is to uh, the conduct of that war and the way that we have uh, particularly domestically uh, are operating. Um, yes, and I have freely acknowledged that we can detain combatants on the, on the battlefield. Um, where there is a question about whether they, what their status is, then they're entitled to a hearing under the Geneva Conventions. At a minimum, they are entitled, all persons are entitled to humane treatment. And this is what we got away from uh, in the early years of the Bush administration until the Supreme Court, uh, over time, reined in uh, these abuses. But these are the abuses that they would like to get back to. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, Mark suggests that, that I, I, we want to broaden and expand rights. And, and you know, actually, that's not such a bad thing. Um, over time, history marches forward, and, and, and human rights uh, are expanded. Uh, and sometimes we extend those rights even to people uh, whom we despise. I'd like to, I mean, that's all very... Uh, actually, I'd like to hear from sure. Michael yeah, Hayden. I, I, 
David, I, you know, we both serve in the Air Force, and, and I, I commend you for your service. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but, but it's unfair to, to make that, dis you know, again, if we want to talk about what was done with, in terms of interrogation, it's a separate debate. This is a legal concept. Which of the equally valued legal systems do we want to use, domestic criminal law or the laws of armed conflict? I think we have the right as a nation to use the laws of armed conflict because we, we were attacked by an opposing armed enemy force. And, and, and Stephen, I have to say, you're kind of a broad suspicion of government, and you went back to Vietnam and, and Gulf of Tonkin, and I, I think the historical record is, is quite clouded whether or not the Turner Joy was fired on by North Korean patrol craft. I don't think there is any dispute that we were attacked in New York City and in Washington. Stephen Jones to respond. I concede that point, but it's not the historical accuracy of the initiating incident that's at issue. It's what we do about the incident after it's happened. I'd like to go to the audience for your questions now. And the way this will work, um, if you raise your hand, and um, my system tends to be geographical. I start on the left and move over to the right. Um, and a microphone will be brought to you. When the mic reaches you, if you could stand up and uh, hold it about that far away so that the radio and television can hear you, we'd appreciate it. If you're a member of the news media, we'd appreciate it if you could identify yourself. And um, I just need to shade my eyes for a moment to see. Okay. On the far side and the dark shirt. And again, I urge you to ask a real question and to keep it terse. And you're not here to debate the debaters, but to help them debate with each other. Thank you. It strikes me that uh, something has been left uh, somewhat clouded in uh, the discussion, and that is that we've debated here and, and heard a lot pro and con of whether they should be treated, captured in the way that they are treated as criminals versus enemy combatants. What I haven't heard is a clear <coughs> definition of what the treatment should be when it is declared that they are enemy combatants. In other words, are we looking at recourse under military commissions? Are we looking at a suspension of some of those concerns because of national security? I think for a lot of people, we're uneasy as to the definition behind enemy combatant and the set of prerogatives that would set in if that were to prevail, and we're leaving an open mind on that. So perhaps people can uh, clarify that for us. Thank you. Mark Thiessen, actually, I'd like to go to Mark because okay. you just wrote a whole book about this. <laughs> um, enemy combatants, uh, when you capture somebody who is a member of al-Qaeda or, or the Taliban uh, or is carrying, or for example, just tried to set his underwear on fire on a Detroit airplane and blow up a plane over Detroit that could have killed hundreds of people, uh, our position is that that's an enemy combatant. And that person, when you take him into custody, the first words out of your mouth are not, you have the right to remain silent. You, because the, this is the problem with uh, the difference between our approaches and practice, is that uh, they believe, because they're lawyers and this is the world they live in, that interrogate, the purpose of interrogation is to obtain evidence for a criminal trial. The criminal trial is a third order of interest for, for those of people who are involved in protecting the country. The first job is to get, is to, is, uh, is to get intelligence to stop another terrorist attack. So when, for example, the, uh, the Christmas Day bomber is questioned for 50 minutes and then told he has the right to remain silent, 
you're not going to get, even if he was being incredibly cooperative, in 50 minutes you could not exhaust all the information. But the thing is, is that if you are trying to, if, if you take the law enforcement approach to interrogation, patience is a, is, is a virtue. You are trying to get evidence, and you can take as much time as you want. You build a relationship with the guy. You try and coerce him. You try and co-opt him into giving you information, fool him into giving you information. If you are trying to stop a terrorist attack, patience is deadly. This guy, when, when, he, when the, guy, the Christmas Day bomber was captured, he was supposed to be vaporized on that plane. As soon as al-Qaeda found out that he, was, that he was alive and in U.S. custody, they started covering his tracks. They started sh- shutting down email addresses. They started shutting down camps where he, was, where he was training. They started hiding operatives who he, was, who he knows about. They started hiding safe houses and closing them down. So if he takes three weeks to two, and he's even trained in inter- interrogation resistance to buy time and use the legal system in order to buy his fellows on the outside time. Okay, so, I, I, I so you need to get Frack- that information quickly. To respond to that. Th- I just want to let David Fract respond to this. A little bit of an unclarity, and that is even after a lawyer is signed, I believe that interrogation can proceed. Isn't that correct? But he doesn't have to answer any questions. He, once, he ha- once he has a lawyer, he's not going to answer any questions. I will, well, te- I will tell you, I will tell you this. The for the first cases, there were many people who did cooperate. No, no, no. They, no. For, first of all, uh, I will tell you who says this, Eric Holder. When Eric Holder, after John Walker Lind was captured in, in, in Afghanistan and brought over here, Eric Holder was being interviewed on CNN in 2002. And they said, can they get tough with him in the interrogation? And he said, well, he's not going to tell you anything now that he has a lawyer and he's in America. Well, so, so, so experience. People with lawyers confess all the time. Stephen they confess Jones. even though they've been given the Miranda rights. I mean, do you think Osama bin Laden, just to use the most extreme example, is not familiar with the rule of Miranda? I mean, they use those Miranda. of us that practice law daily in the courts of law know that many police detectives are just as skilled as the people that you want to use in hands detection, that the purpose of interrogation is not prosecution. It's to gather evidence frequently on an intelligence basis, whether it's financial crimes or drug crimes, and that many thousands of defendants who are told they have the right to remain silent spill their guts. David Frecht. David Frecht. I'd like to get back to the the question, which which is a good one. And given that uh, this is a motion that's been proposed by uh, our opponents, I thought that they would uh, try to define it. But actually what they're doing is is, is constantly shifting back and forth um, because they say, well, we're at war, so it's enemy combatants. And we acknowledge in the active battlefield, in the active theater of conflict in Iraq, in Afghanistan, those who are actively fighting against us are enemy combatants and can be treated under the laws of war. Now, where it gets murky is when we're talking about people here in the United States. And the, the uh, prior administration's policies were to treat Americans, American citizens as enemy combatants. American citizens were locked up in military prisons for years. And before that case could ever go to the Supreme Court, they'd they decided to, 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 to uh, drop it. Um, so we have to differentiate between an active battlefield and what's going on uh, domestically. Now, Mr. Thiessen says that membership, if we pick up someone who's a member of Taliban or al-Qaeda, I mean, these people do not carry membership cards. And we also have to distinguish between al-Qaeda and Taliban. Um, the Taliban is a, is a for, fighting force in Afghanistan and Pakistan that just want us to leave. Um, they are not terrorists. Uh, they're not launching international terrorist attacks. Al-Qaeda is. 
um, I would argue that the Taliban was essentially the lawful military uh, government and military force of Afghanistan at the time we attacked and therefore was entitled to Geneva Convention status, but we uh, protection as prisoners of war, but we did not afford them that. Um, another thing that's important to talk about is when we, when we say terrorists, what they're really talking about are suspected terrorists, people that they believe may be terrorists. Now, if someone tries to light their underwear on fire in a plane, yes, you have a pretty good indication that they're a terrorist. But it's usually not that clear cut. It's usually based on some intelligence from some source or method that we're not allowed to know about that they suspect someone. Um, and in that case, to simply lock that person up uh, incommunicado for potentially for years, if, if I'm understanding what uh, Mark is proposing, um, is is problematic, and we have gotten a lot of the wrong people. Now, yes, I, can I get, I, if I we interrogate... I'm sorry. Actually, I'm, if, I want just one point about interrogation. Very quickly, because if I we actually interrogate want to move on to people, question. Yes, people have information, and we may eventually get it. But why limit it to terrorists? Why don't we do that to every single person that's suspected of any crime? Why, why not drug no, not traffickers? We'll because come back, I, no, we'll I, come I, back I, to I, that because we're going to keep going in circles on the same territory, and I want to move it, and I bet we do come back to it. Um, in uniform, in the third row. I believe you're, are you, are you part of the West Point contingent? I am, sir. My name is Captain Welcome. Cinnamon Mather. I'm a judge advocate for the U.S. Army, currently assigned to the United States Military Academy in the Department of Law. I do teach constitutional and military law. We have some of our cadets with us here this evening. Let me pose first. This comes in my personal capacity. I'm asking this question, not anything to do with Army or West Point. I fully acknowledge that you are more intelligent than I, that you have access to information I never will. My question comes in the fact that I'm assuming, aside from you, sir, that maybe you've never been deployed. No, I have not. I've been to Iraq. I've been to Afghanistan. Without fail, every time I interacted with an Iraqi or an Afghan, their single question to me was this. How do you explain Guantanamo Bay? Well, let me ask you my question. My question is not whether we should treat them like enemy combatants or, or, or criminals, but whichever we decide, there are always consequences to a decision. And if you, and if you take it out and, and extrapolate it to the implication this causes for those of us who are fighting these wars, who do know we are a nation at war, so... In the next year as I leave for my third deployment possibly, when I get out there or as I'm teaching my cadets, this is the way we do things because we're America, how do I justify us giving up the moral high ground? And do you think we are? Absolutely. We can't go around and champion ourselves as the land of the free and the just. Michael Hayden. In the case of Midian versus Bush, there was a line that I, basically I'm going to let them get to the question. No, I, I, you've, been, you've had three minutes, and I usually give 30 seconds, so There's please, with respect. There's a line that says, ma'am, please, yes, ma'am, 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 Michael Hayden, of please. Yeah, um, first of all, Captain, thank you for your service. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled. Uh, I understand the image of Guantanamo, and we had, we had serious questions inside the Bush administration about Guantanamo. As, as, as David suggested, 
We took about two-thirds of the prison population out of Guantanamo, not as David suggested because we thought they were innocent. Uh, we actually transferred them to third countries, actually to kind of home of record, with the assumption that they would then be held there or watched there so that they would no longer be a danger. All right? I, I guess if you believe we're at war and that these are enemy combatants, we've got to put them somewhere. I'm not wedded to Guantanamo. I understand the image issue. But our right to detain them, I think, is unarguable under the laws of armed conflict. And, and to be held for eight years without trial or the evidence against No, no, no. I'm, Catherine, I'm sorry. You're, you're the lawyer and I'm not, all right? But nowhere does Geneva require us to try enemy combatants. I've sat with, in, in my last capacity as head of CIA, I had multiple visits from the president of the International Red Cross as we were trying to, to, to get closer to some of the things they were suggesting to us. He never suggested we had to try anybody. They did have, as, as David knows, they had CSRTs, Combatant Status Review Tribunals, which is what happens within the military. It is the tradition of the military to ensure through a process, due process, that the individual you have is indeed the individual you believe him to be. I just don't understand what of this enemy, this unlawful enemy, unlawful combatant or unprivileged belligerent is the new phraseology, what of that gives them rights that six million other prisoners of war we've held as a nation have not had? Mark Thiessen, do you want to join your partner I do want to jump in because I think uh, – I thank you also for your service. But I think uh, my answer to you is what do you say is you should defend the other people in uniform who serve proudly at Guantanamo and keep this country safe. Uh, the, the fact is that most of those people are asking us questions because of misstatements, mistruths, and lies that have been spread about Guantanamo Bay. You mean, Every, the, you mean the Iraqis are misinformed? Iraqis, people around the world. Because people have gone, these, these, these allegations go out there, and this is, as my old boss, Don Rumsfeld, uh, used to say, that truth goes around the world 30 times before, uh, uh, lies go around the world 30 times before truth gets its boots on. Um, the, every investigation into conduct at Guantanamo Bay has found these allegations of widespread abuse are false. Brigadier Generals uh, uh, Schmidt and Furlow uh, did a careful investigation. No, quote, no evidence of torture or inhumane treatment at JTF Guantanamo. The Navy Inspector General A.T. Church, who I interviewed for my book and who said he expected to find widespread abuse at Guantanamo, said that when he investigated, conducted hundreds of interviews, uh, interviewed detainees, interviewed, interviewed everybody who had been there, he said, we can confidently state, based upon this investigation, we found nothing that would any way substantiate detainees' allegations of torture or violent physical abuse at Guantanamo. Now, I'll tell you something. We're also hearing from the other side that the people there are where the, the poor sheep herders and goat herders who've been wrapped up and taken to Guantanamo. The combat leadership of the Taliban today is made up of Guantanamo alumni. Just last week in Yemen, they, they, the Yemenis arrested a Guantanamo alumnus who was joining al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And the man who was one of the, one of the leaders of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula who sent the Christmas Day bomber is a former Guantanamo inmate. These are dangerous, dangerous people. Okay, and I, even the Obama administration's review found 95% of the people who are there right now are either leaders or fighters for al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Mark, uh, thank you. I, I, David Frack, do you want to respond? But I sort of feel the captain did your work for you on that well, question. I, I want to respond to a specific point made, made by Mark uh, about the, sh the sh reports, the investigations into detainee abuse at Guantanamo, and the claim that 
that they, they searched they, and they didn't find anything. Uh, he referenced the church report, the Schmidt furlough report. Um, when I was representing Mohammed Jawad, a, a teenage boy from Afghanistan at Guantanamo, uh, a courageous uh, prosecutor by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Darrell Vandeveld turned over some discovery materials to me uh, that showed that my uh, then, at that point, uh, 16 or 17-year-old uh, client had been subjected to what was called the Frequent Flyer Sleep Deprivation Program. Um, and according to the Schmidt furlough report, uh, they had discovered that there had been uh, a Frequent Flyer Sleep Deprivation Program. And during this program, detainees were moved, and in the case of my client, 112 times from cell to cell during a two-week period. He was moved constantly back and forth uh, in an effort to deprive him of sleep. And so, uh, but according to the Schmidt furlough report, this pro program had been stopped uh, after, after a complaint by the FBI and had been stopped in uh, March of 2004. Uh, the only problem with that was that my client had been subjected to the program in May of 2004. And so I asked Colonel Vandeveld to continue digging, and he found additional records that showed that this program continued for at least another year, and dozens of other people were subjected to it. In fact, we had the person who ran the program. It was a, a major, it was an intelligence officer in the Army, came to testify at Guantanamo in a hearing that, that in which I was representing a detainee and said this was standard operating procedure. The generals knew about it. Everybody, everybody was vetted and approved. So these the investigations were whitewashes. They missed widespread abuses. I tried to bring this to the attention of the Department of Defense. I filed a, a report uh, of a violation of the law of armed conflict, as is my duty to do as a military officer. What did they do? Nothing. No follow-up investigation. I was never contacted. So we have, we have a very basic disagreement about what we think is happening inside the walls of Guantanamo. You, he, you, you say that basically uh, there have been very few undocumented violations, and David is saying that these are whitewashes, the reports that say that. I think it's a shocking thing to say about Admiral Church and those people who are, who are people who wore a uniform with honor. Hold on. No, you talk now. Let me talk. No, no, no. Hold Admiral on. Admiral Church. Let me, Actually, David, on, wait. Let Mark, no. respond, please. Let me, let me get a word in here, please. Uh, first no, of wait. All, you've had no problem on getting no, words fair in. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, he was trying to interrupt me. <laughs> the, the, uh, the frequent flyer moment program you refer to, where per someone is moved once every four hours, roughly, two to four hours uh, at that. What do you think these detainees in Guantanamo do all day? They're not busting rocks. They're not making license plates. They sleep. They read the Koran. They play foosball. They play soccer. They, they eat whenever they want, sleep whenever they want. This is not torture, the, the frequent flyer. You may not like it, but I'll tell you something. People, the interrogation, interrogation techniques, even inter interrogation techniques under the Geneva Convention, people would find shocking if you're not familiar with interrogation. Interrogation is not supposed to be pleasant. Um, and they, they, you have, in, in, in the case of uh, some of these people who are at Guantanamo, people who are senior al-Qaeda leaders, senior Taliban leaders who have intelligence that about, about the possibility of planned attacks against the United States, and they had a responsibility to get them within the rules of the law, and they did it. And it, the, the, these investigations were conducted, they were open, and they, and they found no evidence of, of widespread abuse. And, and that's uh, because the senior al-Qaeda leaders were locked up in secret CIA ghost prisons, in uh, Eastern European countries and in Thailand and places that we were not allowed to know about. That's where the worst abuses went on, but there were plenty of horif horrific abuses at Guantanamo. Absolutely um, David, I'll, Michael, absolutely. Michael Hayden, I'll, I'll come back. who was the director of the CIA. I'll come back for the debate on interrogation techniques. Please sign me up. 
that to summarize the last statement, I believe the American armed forces are competent and capable of holding enemy combatants as prisoners of war consistent with the laws of armed conflict. Discussion about that point are a distraction from the basic question we have in front of us today. Another question from the audience. And uh, I just want to encourage you, um, again, the captain's question was terrific, but please to keep the rhetorical flourishes to a minimum because they chew up time. And the question was so good all by itself. Um, in the front row, and then I'll start moving up after that. Gentlemen, could you, sir, could you please rise just so the camera can uh, find K you? Kevin Afshari, CBS News. I do want to come back to David Frack's fundamental point, um, and I'd like to get a response from Mark in particular. Um, a lot of the guilt or innocence of these suspected enemy combatants is a lot more nebulous than that of Abdul Muttalib. So I just want to know, on a very practical level, if we don't go through the criminal justice system, how do we know that they are terrorists? Um, the, first of all, it's not about guilt. Uh, the, you don't have to prove guilt. These are not criminal defendants. You have to have a reasonable uh, belief that these people were captured in the war and that they're members of al-Qaeda or the Taliban and were con uh, conducting operations against us. The, the fact is there are, we have detained in the war on terror well over 100,000 people. Only 800 made it to Guantanamo. Only 100 made it into the CIA program. So these are, these are, we're not just picking up people off the street and throwing them in, in Guantanamo. Were, were there some people uh, that were sent there by accident that we made a mistake? Our enemy doesn't wear uniforms. They don't follow a chain of command. It's hard. There's some mistakes made, absolutely. And we had a process in, the, in, the, uh, in Guantanamo that was set up to review, their, to review the evidence against them and to make sure the people who were not, didn't belong there uh, were sent back. But the reality is we got, you know, we're, the, they, the left always wants to get this debate onto the topic of, of abuses. The, the, this is a debate about keeping this country safe, with the exception of one of our debates. Michael Hayden, what's CIA the director. judicial process you would use for killing the believed enemy combatant as opposed to capturing him? Stephen Jones. Well, I think, uh, Mark, the problem that I have I think David is right. Capturing people on the battlefield is different than arresting someone at the Detroit airport for committing or attempting to commit what is clearly a violation of the federal criminal law. Now, you cannot take that person consistent with the Constitution of the United States and Title 18, which is the criminal code, and try him other than in a federal criminal court according to to the federal rules of criminal procedure and the federal rules of evidence and to maintain wrong. that you can... Well, you're wrong. No, I'm not wrong. <laughs> the, we don't have just a, a separate... We don't have a separate criminal justice system for people that commit crimes in the United States. And it isn't a question, Mark, of politics or the left or the Stephen, right. Stephen, can you just Bush, stay yes, with your mic? Thank you. Bush versus Obama. It's a question of the Constitution. It's not political, it's constitutional. And there's one system of law in this country. Now, I will concede that in a battlefield situation, abroad or outside the United States, the line is blurry. But when you start saying that you're going to arrest people and try them in a military tribunal for crimes committed in the United States against American citizens, I don't think the American people will tolerate that. Stephen? The, um, Ex parte, Mark, 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 I will come to you. I need to do a little bit of radio business.
This is an Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News, and I am serving as moderator as we debate this motion. Treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. We have two teams against two who are hashing it out, and we're now going to go to Mark Thiessen to respond to the point just um, made. First of all, ex parte querent of 1942. Uh, this is the Supreme Court. One, a, 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 one who takes up arms against the United States in a foreign theater of war, regardless of his citizenship, may be properly designated as an enemy combatant and treated as such. That doesn't matter whether, the, whether they're a citizen or not. Uh, the, the, I would assume that you now consider that Franklin Roosevelt is a war criminal because the military commissions for the saboteurs who were captured here uh, are, are unconstitutional no, as well. And, and, and on top of so military commissions have been held outside of the, out of the, outside of the Article III courts going back to George Washington. I assume he's not a war criminal either. Uh, the, 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 uh, but again, you're completely focused on criminal justice system. I don't care if we put Khalid Sheikh Mohammed on trial or not when we capture him. When Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is captured, I want to know what his plans for the next attack are. And my question to you is, you're focused on where he's going to be tried. I want to find out what he knows. When Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was captured, if you were the one who was responsible for getting the information, he's captured, he's killed 3,000 people just down the street from here, uh, he is, admits to you that he has plans for new attacks in motion. Does Khalid Sheikh Mohammed have the right to remain silent? Well, of course he has the right to remain silent. The only difference between your position and mine is that you don't think that he should be told he has the right to remain silent, and I think <laughs> it's beside the point because, of course, he knows he has the right to remain silent. So, so hold on. So you're... He does, so you're saying that if, let's say, let's say we capture Khalid Sheikh Mohammed before the 9-11 attacks, put, put aside the, all the litany of attacks that he had in play, you would have allowed 9-11 to go on rather than get him to give the information that he had in well, play. Now, Mark, let's don't defend the indefensible here. It's not the indefensible. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed killed 3,000 people in this country. He had information about plots to blow up the library tower in Los Angeles, to blow up our marine camp in Djibouti, to blow up uh, the, uh, the, uh, our consulate in Karachi. These, these are real attacks to commit re repeat 9-11 in London. Well, he has the right true, to withhold that information. I don't want to take the weekly standards word for it or, frankly, your book. If all of that is true, then it can be presented to an American jury, and an American jury will convict him and give him the death penalty. What if That's the clock the is ticking? Um, Stephen Jones, what if the clock is ticking in the situation that, that Mark just described, that you, you, you believe he knows about something that's about to happen? Uh, we're five minutes away. Does it make a difference? Well, that's uh, there's a movie no, I'm, but, but no, no, it's, I think that's an over-dramatization of the, of the issue. Uh, those who look for a way to shortcut the system always first uh, bring forward the most extreme example of what could happen. Um, but the truth of the matter is those extreme examples rarely exist. Where they do exist... I believe that the intelligence community and the law enforcement community have on numerous occasions shown the ability, much better than politicians, to uh, protect individual security or, for that matter, national security. David Fractor, you look like you want to add. Yes. Uh, I mean, the whole ticking time bomb scenario is really a red herring. Uh, first of all, uh, police... Uh, in the situation where there's an urgent public safety emergency, are not required to give the Miranda warning. Uh, so, uh, but if your question is, should we use torture in that situation? And that's essentially, uh, I think, what, what Mark is, is saying, is that uh, 
you know, to, in order to prevent an attack, you, you have to be willing to do anything, whatever it takes. And that's where we have a fundamental disagreement. Uh, if we captured Osama bin Laden, I would not torture him. Um, and is that possibly going to lead to an attack that might have been prevented? It, it might. And it Are you okay a, with that? I, I am okay with it because it would be a great tragedy. But it would be a greater tragedy to go down the road, which we already went down, of torturing. Because that one attack may not be averted, but you are going to multiply the attacks for years to come because of the torture. And that is what we have done. Again, I'll, I'll come back and walk, if, if you like, a debate on a different subject. But as the only one on stage who's actually had the question in front of him as to whether or not to Except, authorize Michael, that your, your partner brought these issues to the table himself in his opening remarks in, in, talk, in justifying and, and laying out several scenarios in which the actual methods did do it. So I, I think they're relevant. I don't think it's, it's not a vote on that, but I think it's germane to understanding what the motion means. And I'd, I'd like to see if Mark could respond to what was just said because it was fair. Um, it was, I mean, this is where the rubber hits the road. Uh, David well, is basically – actually, no, let me finish. Sure. Because the rubber hit the road in my car, all right? <laughs> I'm the one who had to make the decision, okay? These are not easy decisions. There are conflicting values. There are moral responsibilities galore, okay? No one should trivialize it, and no one should throw bumper stickers at the difficulty of the decision people like me – people like Leon Panetta still have to make, right? But I come back <laughs> but I come back to the fundamental question, okay? The American armed forces, the American intelligence community are capable of holding people consistent with the laws of armed conflict. I feel as if we have gone through the looking glass in the last 30 to 40 minutes as we try to take people who are armed enemy combatants. And David... Do not make the straw man that Iraq is okay to capture. It's not okay to capture and keep them as enemy combatants in Brooklyn. Okay? What about Mali? What about Djibouti? What about Yemen? What about other, the Horn of Africa? What, what, what about Pakistan? That is where the enemy is. That is where the enemy is mounting attacks against our citizens. They are enemy combatants. And as God is my judge, I will use the full authority that the law of armed conflict gives me as long as my president and my Congress has given me that authorization. And your partner, Mark Thiessen. I, I would add to that simply, we're not going to have time to debate all the interrogation techniques. They were not torture. Um, and I can walk you through it if you really want to. But I'll tell you something. Well I'll, well, I'll tell you something. You said something. I mean, this is, you, you're sort of dismissive of the threat. Um, and in a very sort of disturbing way, you said, well, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd let the – you'd let the – you basically admitted you would let the attack happen and treat, and treat him as a criminal rather than an enemy combatant. You know, you said earlier when about my introductory remarks, two little terrorist networks. Well, you know what? One of those two little terrorist networks killed 3,000 people down the street from here, 19 men with box cutters. This is a real threat. These people are out there every day trying to kill us. And I think it's really shameful to dismiss them as two little terrorist networks. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was captured in Pakistan. You said unless he's in Iraq or Afghanistan, he's not an enemy combatant. So do you consider Khalid Sheikh Mohammed an enemy combatant? The mastermind of 9-11, the man who commanded the operation, the operational commander he, of al-Qaeda, is he an enemy combatant, yes or no? How do you know 
that he's the mastermind of 9-11. What, what, oh, my gosh. He has not been put on trial, and you don't want to put him on trial, and you are denying those 3,000 victims. I'm not denying them anything. You are denying them. You say it's not important to have a trial. I say it is important to have a trial. It's not the first priority. It is important to establish the truth of what happened and for people to get some closure, and it's important for these people to be punished. I do not in any way diminish the seriousness of 9-11, and I agree with General Hayden that these are difficult decisions, and I'm not sure that I would want to be in the position he was in of having to make those. But what I would tell you is that the oath that we take, that we both took as officers in the United States military, is to defend the Constitution of the United States. It is not to defend the people of the United States, because what we are defending are our values um, and our history. And sometimes, yes, it may cost lives, um, but you cannot achieve perfect security. And when you try to, um, by uh, making shortcuts, you ultimately diminish us as a country, and it does not serve us in the long run. A question from the center. There's blue jacket and white, a uh, uh, blue shirt and dark blue blazer. Yep, your co colleague is tapping you on the shoulder. Yes. Uh, could you could you just wait for the microphone and again uh, to keep it as a question and. My name is Les Shelton, and my question seems that uh, comes from the fact that it seems that what we're really most difficult is what is the definition operationally of a person who's terrorist, and how can we be assured that a terrorist on a bus in Pakistan and the whole bus is grabbed because they know a terrorist is on the bus, and how do we understand as people listening to all this how we can feel comfortable with the shortcut because nobody wants their ass burned. And the fact of the matter is we need to feel a bit more, I need to feel a bit more comfortable that the selection process for applying these definitions is somehow rational. And I have to say that our legal system is one of the ways those things are done. But again, we have a group of people who say they're experts and, my, and they know these people are. But we have a bad history. That isn't always the case. And so, so can you cut to your the question? The question is, how do we make this distinction so that all of us can feel more comfortable with what our government may be doing? Do you mean who, the distinction who is a terrorist and who is not? Yeah. You know, how to get the innocents off How the and, and who? I mean, there is also the question of who makes the distinction as well. Yeah. Um, let's take that to the side for the motion. Sure. Um, Michael Hayden. There's a process. It's a rigorous process. I governed it while I was the director of CIA with regard to that portion of the war that CIA had responsibility for. Uh, to be clear, just being a terrorist doesn't get much interest from us. The authorization we have from the Congress and the uh, authorization for the use of military force is against al-Qaeda and its affiliates. So it's not a global uh, terrorist issue. We are at war with a select group of terrorists. President Obama has made that clear. The Congress has made that clear. President Bush has made that clear. We use the same criteria to capture an individual as a terrorist that we use on the battlefield to kill an individual who is a terrorist. Right? I'm responding to the political processes of the American state. All three branches of government have said we are at war. I'm using the full authority given to me. I use it in the, in, in the clearest conscience I have. Are mistakes made on the battlefield? Killing, capturing? Of course they are. 
but we work, you have very good men and women working very hard to apply absolute precision to their tasks. Now, I will admit that the processes of intelligence are a bit different from the processes of the judicial system. Again, as I mentioned in the one habeas case, we had to fold our tent and admit defeat because I could not in conscience tell the enemy combatant who the source of our information was. If I did that, I would quickly not have sources of information anywhere in the world. And so we had to make a serious trade-off. That's what I mean by putting this into a law enforcement template rather than using a rigorous and consistent with the rule of law, law of armed conflict template. Thank you, Michael Hayden. I'm going to take one more question. Um, there is uh, on the far aisle, almost near the top, yes, uh, up seven steps. Thank you. Um, I think my question is for General Hayden. Uh, you and your partner have admitted that mistakes are sometimes made as to who does get picked up uh, as a terrorist. Uh, in the civilian uh, justice system, we say it's something of a cliche that it's better for uh, 100 guilty men to walk free than to convict an innocent man unjustly. What's your calculation in the war on terror? How many non-terrorists can be rendered off the streets of Toronto or Amsterdam to make it okay? Obviously, there's no precise answer to the Michael question. Hayden. We do the very best we can, and we review our data constantly. As I mentioned, to, to David's point, and he not in agreement because he's familiar with the process, we have combatant status review teams. Um, even before we had the, the habeas process uh, at Guantanamo, you go over the evidence routinely. It's required by our regulations. It's required by the regime that's in place at Guantanamo. I hope the audience is not, is not demanding. 100% certitude and 100% perfection before your intelligence services or your military uh, services can act in your defense. And that concludes round two of our debate. And here's where we are. We're about to hear closing statements from each debater. They will be two minutes each. This is their last chance to change your minds. You will be asked to vote once again immediately after they speak and to pick the winner in this debate just a few minutes from now. Our motion is treat enemy terrorists like, excuse me, our motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. And first to summarize his position against the motion, Stephen Jones, who served as principal defense counsel for Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. As we have listened to the debate tonight, I think two or three issues have emerged sharply. The issue is not just about the treatment of individuals at Guantanamo Bay. The issue is larger, and that is what is the system we will use to adjudicate the guilt of those persons charged with crimes against the United States. And I say that the line is indivisible. By that I mean you cannot say we have one set of justice over here for these categories of crimes. We have one rule of evidence, one rule of procedure, one rule of appellate practice, and over here we have an entirely different rule of evidence, 
and a different procedure. First, that leaves the intelligence community, who are largely anonymous, and many law enforcement officers and prosecutors, unaccountable in the final analysis for the decision made. General Hayden has been very correct in telling you that there is not 100% perfection, and there isn't. After all, the 9-11 Commission, in its report, talked about the system was blinking red. So our intelligence and many of our law enforcement officials and indeed political leaders knew of the risks and did nothing. In the final analysis, accountability or responsible decisions has to be made somewhere. Political process, a legal process, something done openly. But that is not what the argument is made by our colleagues to our right. Their argument is, trust us. Trust us. We'll get it right this time. Unfortunately, history shows too many examples of not getting it right. That's why we have the rule of law. Thank you, Stephen Johnson. The motion, treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. And summarizing his position for this motion, Mark Thiessen, a columnist for The Washington Post, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and former speechwriter for President George W. Bush. Um, we did get it right. In the period, in the eight years before September 11, 2001, al-Qaeda killed three th roughly 3,500 people in a series of attacks, starting with the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, followed by the attacks on our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, followed by the, uh, the, uh, the attack on the U.S.'s coal and culminating in September 11, 2001. That was when we followed the law enforcement approach uh, to interrogation. During that period of time, we prosecuted 29 people in connection with those attacks. If you think that is an approach and we didn't get the intelligence we needed to stop the September 11th terrorist attacks, in the period that followed, we have not been hit again. So it's a very stark question. Do you want to go back to the approach when al-Qaeda was mounting attacks of increasing lethality, or do you want to follow the approach that we took, which has kept this country safe for almost a decade? Our opponents are trying to wiggle out of it. They want to, to focus you on, on uh, waterboarding and the interrogation techniques. If they, don't, if, you don't, if they don't like the techniques we used, there's a wide line between waterboarding on one hand and you have the right to remain silent. Lawful techniques that can be used short of that. Choose other techniques. But, the, but what their position holds, if you hold that a terrorist is a criminal and not an enemy combatant, we cannot kill them using predator drones outside of the low war zones of Iraq and Afghanistan. We cannot kill them in Pakistan. We cannot kill them in Yemen. We cannot kill them in East Africa. There are terrorists plotting to attack us right now that Barack Obama would not be allowed to kill. And we will, and in second, we will not be able to interrogate them effectively, as we found out in the Christmas Day bomber, as we found out after the Times Square bomber. Um, so, so this is a very stark question. Do you want to go back to the, to the, to the approach that led to 3,500 people getting killed and we were not able to get the intelligence to stop the attacks? Or do you want to follow the approach, uh, or do you want to follow the approach that kept our country safe for almost a decade? Thank you, Mark Thiessen. Our motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. And summarizing his position against this motion, David Fracht, a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force Reserve JAG Corps, who served as lead defense counsel with the Office of Military Commissions. Our opponents seem to value 
American lives more than the lives of anybody else. They seem to forget about Madrid, about London, about Bali. The terrorists have not stopped, but simply because we tightened security domestically and because we presented easy targets overseas, the action has moved overseas. We are not safer today than we were uh, on September 12, 2001. We are, we are in a worse position because of our actions in the war on terror, our lawlessness, and our abandonment of the rule of law. Uh, General Hayden talks about a lot about the rule of law and observing it, uh, but that's not really what was not really our experience under the prior administration. Let me tell you about my personal experience. Um, I was assigned to represent two detainees at Guantanamo. Both had been determined to be enemy combatants in the combatant status review tribunals that you heard about. But in fact, neither was an enemy combatant. One, uh, Mr. Uh, Ali al-Balul, was in fact a terrorist. He was an al-Qaeda insider. He was a media advisor and, and pr created propaganda for al-Qaeda. He should have been tried in federal court uh, for material support to terrorism. He was not an operational terrorist. He did not kill any Americans. He did not plot any attacks on Americans. The other was neither an enemy combatant nor a terrorist. And that was, he, in fact, he was a child who had been tortured into confessing to something he didn't do. Um, a lot of mistakes were made. The rule of law was not observed over time with the uh, intervention of the Supreme Court. We gradually brought the pendulum back to uh, something approaching equilibrium. Uh, but they're advocating going back. I'm advocating going forward. Um, so we urge you to vote against the proposition. Thank you. Thank you, David Fracht. <laughs> Our motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. And to summarize for the motion, our final speaker, Michael Hayden, former CIA director and the country's first principal deputy director of national intelligence and the former director of the NSA. As I predicted and somewhat feared, um, we've kind of sidled into a discussion as to this is whether or not you are for or against the rule of law. Uh, I warned you that that was not the issue here, that there is plenty of law within the laws of armed conflict to govern our behavior, and the American armed forces, the American intelligence community are quite capable and competent to function within that framework. I uh, was taken aback a little bit by saying the American intelligence community is unaccountable. Um, clearly, Stephen has never been in front of the Senate Select Committee or the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence uh, and to go through the, the openness that we share within the confines of those committees. But I was struck. As Stephen said, the system was blinking red, and I think he was alleging some sort of incompetence. The attack still happened in the summer, in September of 2001. The attack still happened not because the intelligence was wanting, although certainly you can always use better intelligence. The attacks took place because of the model we were using, the model in which we placed the intelligence, which was a law enforcement model. The difference between now and 9-11 is that we are a nation at war and we are taking the fight to the enemy. There's an office in CIA. It's the most operational office we have on our Langley campus. It's responsible for many of the things that the current administration is taking credit for. You walk into that office, you hit a bulkhead, a wall, and there's a sign there saying today's date, and you, you walk by it very often, don't really recognize it. But even now and again, you catch it, and it actually says today's date is September 12, 2001. 
It's been up there for over eight years. When I was director and got in the car and drove down the GW Parkway to my home, it didn't feel like September 12th. It felt a lot like September 10th. That's an attitude that we adopt at our peril. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Hayden. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side argued best. We're going to ask you once again to vote. Go to those keypads at your seat that will register your vote. And we will get the readout and the results almost instantaneously. Our motion is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. If you agree with the motion, push number one. If you disagree, push number two. If you are undecided or became undecided, push number three. And you can ignore the other numbers. And if you uh, want to correct your entry, go ahead and do so. And it'll lock in the latest one. Yeah. It'll be a watch, no? Or did you get persuaded over to the other side? I think not. <laughs> so I'm going to have the results in just a moment. I think we've locked out the system. And I just want to, uh, first of all, um, when I said, when I was going to say the rubber hit the road, it's rare that we actually, and I know that it's in your car, but uh, that we actually came to <clears throat> a kind of um, moment, I think, of really essential truth about the difference between the two sides. And it was... Uh, I, I applaud both sides for going to that point and for a very, very spirited d debate from, from both teams today. I'd just like to give them a round of applause. <laughs> and uh, the questions from the audience, including with the rhetorical flourish from West Point, uh, were, were quite good, quite on point, and better than we normally get, so I want to thank you for those as well. This is only the, uh, the first of our five-part debate series throughout the fall. Uh, next, our next debate is going to be on Wednesday, October 6th. Our motion is, Islam is a religion of peace. Panelists for this motion are Zeba Khan, a writer and an advocate for Muslim-American civic engagement, and Majid Nawaz, a former member of a radical Islamist party, who served four years in an Egyptian prison as a prisoner of conscience. Against the motion, the Somali-born Dutch parliamentarian who has a fatwa on her head, Ayan Hersi Ali, and Douglas Murray, who is director of the Center for Social Cohesion, which is a London think tank that is focused on radicalism. Individual tickets are still available by visiting our website and at the Skirball box office. We also have outside DVDs of past debates and books by our panelists, which obviously include Mark Thiessen's book. His mother did not buy all of them. There are, there are more out there. Um, make sure you can become a fan of Intelligence Squared now uh, on Facebook, and by doing so, you'll get a discount on our upcoming debates. All of our debates can be heard now on more than 220 NPR stations across the country, and you can also watch them on Bloomberg Television Network. This debate starts running on Monday at 9 p.m., Visit Bloomberg.com to find your local channel. Intelligence Squared is now one of the most popular podcasts on iTunes. We are very pleased about that. So download, join the trend, and listen to past debates of Intelligence Squared U.S. All right, I now have the final results. We had you vote twice, once before the debate and once again at the conclusion. We asked you where you stood on our motion, which is treat terrorists like enemy combatants, not criminals. 
The team that has changed the most minds, that has moved the most percentage points, will be declared our winner. Here is how it went. Before the debate, 33% of you were for the motion, 32% were against, 35% were undecided. After the debate, 39% for, 55% against, 6% undecided. The side against the motion wins. Our congratulations to them. Thank you from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S.